Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Guma Kundikomi, a Sudanese academic and researcher in Khartoum. He also served as peace advisor to the Sudanese Prime Minister, Abdallah Homdok. Just a quick note that in this conversation, the professor refers to Juba signatories, who are former rebel groups who signed the Juba peace agreement with the government of Sudan in 2020. He also mentions the FFC Central Committee. This is the main block of the civilian Forces for Freedom and Change coalition, but this is essentially led by the government leaders deposed in the 2021 coup. Professor, thanks so much for, for joining our podcast today. You're welcome. So we are here primarily to talk about the new political deal in Sudan uh, that occurred in December, this political framework agreement, as it's being called. First of all, to take a step back, obviously, the military seized uh, full power more than a year ago in October 2021. But what has been the effect of that coup on Sudan and its stability, not just in Khartoum, but throughout the country? Outside the center of course, we have seen, the, despite the fact that the, the coup is led by the military and security apparatuses, and the control of the state was under was and still is under the military uh, authority, but uh, those areas actually experience a rising and mounting trend of insecurity, instability, ethnic tension uh, driven by some sort of political agenda. The economy, the rural economy and livelihood started to actually worsen in the rural area and ensure the coup did not bring any uh, improvement in that. And in fact, the, the tension between the center and periphery actually increased. We also have seen the Ethnopolitics uh, became even more obvious, uh, where we have seen a lot of regional-based movement, despite the fact that they still raise the slogan of the revolution, but they started to have regional-based kind of demand. And the good example here is the example of Eastern Sudan. So we'll talk about the Eastern Sudan situation more later because it is part of these current negotiations over a future government um, and one of the one of the obstacles and sticky points that's part of these phase two negotiations. First, though, before we move on to the to the new agreement, can you explain why exactly we have seen more instability after the military takeover? Because, of course, most times there's a military coup or there's a strongman rule, one of their defenses is that it's to improve security, stability in the country. So so what went wrong in the Sudan case? Why is it that we've seen the military takeover and yet uh, growing instability and this growing periphery center tension? I think one straight answer is that the revolution, uh, which is led by youth, is fed up with any chances of the return of the military power into governing the country. Uh, so here you have the military power and the military power at the hand of the military cracking down the peacefulness movement and the peacefulness movement actually facing the, brutal, the material brutality with more peacefulness and resilience. And that actually created what I can call balance of weakness. I mean, none of the two sides have a power to you know, overcome the other. So we remain in a situation where there is stalemate. The second point was also that the military did not win any clear and strong regional or international backup. In this case, there is some sort of support, but it's not enough 
to give the, the military a dominant kind of victory over the peaceful demonstration. Hmm. So we have here a prolonged political impasse. As you say, the coup was... Uh, continued to be resisted by Sudanese, and then and then also your point that of course the the coup backers failed to really find the external backing that I think they they thought they would get. They of course did not uh, receive that at least to the degree they needed. So that sets up this long impasse, and eventually, after many months of uh, largely behind closed doors negotiations, they signed this agreement in December, which promises a, a restoration of uh, civilian rule. First of all, how did it come together and what does it mean? Yeah, I think the the political framework agreement, which was concluded last December, 5th of last December, is a result of several factors. One of them was the persistent international pressure on all sides, but more pressure on the military to undo the coup. But at the same time, the civilian forces were also fragmented after the coup because part of the civilian forces were backing up the coup itself. So after the coup, we ended by having a new kind of dynamics where there are some civilian uh, forces, including some of the Juba signatories who actually supported the coup directly or indirectly. And therefore, you have a situation where there is a kind of deadlock while the economic situation continued to deteriorate, insecurity continued to be mounting, and the, the crashing down of the, of the use and the number of the, those who are injured or killed started to rise up, which means the human rights itself as a file became really a, a concern for international community. That all factors contributed together to the fact that there is no alternative other than negotiating a kind of deal. And in fact, even at the beginning, the, the civilian forces led by the Forces of Freedom and Change, the Central Committee, they were also resisting, the, in principle, the, the negotiation itself. If the FFC were resisting negotiation, uh, the civilians resisting negotiation, how, how did they end up coming to the table to get to this agreement? Yeah, so I think after a long marathon of international pressure led by the trilateral mechanism, that is the, the unit, unit arms and the African Union and EGAD, behind them the international major actors including the Troika, Norway, USA and UK, in addition to the European Union, they all rally behind pushing through in order to find some sort of, or let us say to unlock the deadlock. So after these negotiations that involved different actors, the question was always, if you refuse to negotiate, what is the alternative? So because of that, at some point, I think all the Sudanese stakeholders started to, to consider the negotiation with the military. And after that, the, the deal was started. So it's actually a deal which is, I would say it was driven by international pressure after the internal different forces, military and civilian, failed to provide any alternative, but rather the, the deadlock. Hmm. And what would you say are the main pillars of the deal? I think um, the main pillar of the deal, uh, of the deal in, in aggregate term, it's, it's an attempt to undo the coup. Uh, and, uh, and the second 
milestone is that for the first time it actually explicitly expressed that the military will not be partner to governance but they will actually go back to their normal role as an army as a national army that has a specific role to play in any modern civilian state mm. yeah, so i think it's remarkable in some ways because after the coup there was a lot of talk of just trying to get back to what was the status quo ante in terms of the the power sharing arrangement um from 2019 in which the military and civilian you know basically both had formal political roles but what what's interesting about this december agreement is as you said it 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 goes much further beyond that and the military has no formal political role anymore at all and yet the deal has quite a few critics can you explain who those critics are and and, and do you see a basis for their criticism i think the critics can be divided into two broad categories. Category one is the one criticizing the agreement because it was not participatory. It was not inclusive in terms of participation in the process. A lot of critics who were excluded from the process because the process was basically between the military and the FFC uh, central committee, who are basically the one who, host, who were hosted by the coup. So the, the, the logic here is that if, if you want to undo the coup, then you want it to like go back to the status quo before the coup, minus the military going back to the barracks. So because of that, the FSC was justifying the fact that the negotiation should be between the military and those who were hosted from the, from, the, from the power due after the coup. That was their logic, which has not been accepted. One of their main questions is that we want this agreement to be opened up, and we, all of that we negotiate and, and agree on it. And, and that actually raised the question of consensus, the civilian consensus, which, which became another tricky point here. However, the second, the second category is actually the category which is affiliated to the military. They are not only affiliated to the military, but they are also, some of their key leaders are part of the current power sharing. If you take, for example, the Juba signatories, leaders, all of them are now holding some sort of government powers. If you take, for example, GEM, Equality and Justice, Jibril is now the Minister of Finance, uh, Menawi who is now the Governor of Greater Darfur, and others. So if you take them like this, and then you have uh, Malik Agdar, who is still a member of the Supreme Council. And these are all ex-rebels who signed the Juba Peace Agreement in 2020. Exactly. So if you take them now, despite the fact that two of them did not sign, especially the Darfur movement, but Malik Agdar signed, but he continued to criticize the the agreement, despite the fact that he signed it, he has his, his own justification. He said that it is centric, it, is, it excludes the periphery, and he also claiming to be representing the periphery, but he still said that he signed it because he doesn't want it to put the Juba peace agreement at the stake. Because you cannot be in the opposition and you ask the government to implement the agreement. Anyway, so the, those group who are closer to the military group the, their criticism is, is not really founded, 
but I think they are actually preferring the status quo because the New Deal can actually reduce their power and influence. The third group is the, the you can call them the, uh, the previous regime, the uh, NCP National Congress Party regime and the Islamic regime who are actually against not only the civilian but against even the military who hosted them in the revolution. So these are a group which is also playing some tactics in a way that if they can find a way, they overthrow the civilian and overthrow the Karen military leader. So they want to get away with the whole Karen system and, and, and therefore they join the opposition and, and, and make a criticism on the fact that the military need to take the full power and, and restore the order and security in the country. Not because they need that, but they, they, by doing so, they will actually exclude the civilian from the power and then they can look how to deal with the military. So you have a spectrum of the critique, but each one has its own, you know, logic. Another group is the mass use movement on the street who actually continue to, to demonstrate up to this moment again in the framework agreement, basically because they don't want to negotiate with the military and, and they, they see the FFC negotiation means break away from the, the, the three no's. But at the same time, they don't have a practical alternative approach of how to get the military out of the power. I think that's a, that's a really good breakdown um, of civilians who are unhappy have more of a complaint about the process. Um, and then people, especially ex-rebel forces who prefer the status quo and stand to lose, and then the sort of ex-regime and aligned forces who are who are sort of against <laughs> both sides, as you say. And then, of course, the street to the resistance committees who, who have protested this sort of process all along. How important do you think it is that the FFC bring more of this first group on board, specifically the civilians who, you know, were, were, were part of the original FFC, who were their allies, but, but essentially now feel cut out from the deal-making, feel that the deposed government leaders, if you will, the deposed cabinet members have essentially negotiated their way back in power, but but have, have left their political allies, you know, on the sidelines in this process. How important do you think it is that before a future government is formed, that there is a wider civilian coalition backing this government? I would say this. There's not much pure civilian forces outside the, the framework political agreement signature. The main, the main group who are, have not signed yet, and the FFC is interested in bringing them on board, are basically the Juba signatory who are non-signatory to the framework agreement. So here, the, the, the reference is, is, is to uh, the Darfurian uh, main forces, Minawi and uh, his movement, and allies, Jibril uh, of uh, Justice and Equality Movement and his allies, these are very important to be taken on board for simple logic. Juba Peace Agreement is a document, and it's one document. You cannot implement an agreement as a government when part of the signatory are in opposition and part of the signatories are in the government. That will not work. And if the Juba Peace Agreement does not become implementable by the expected government, then you are going nowhere in terms of political stability and peace, especially in the rural area and war-torn areas. So 
I think the, the efforts being exerted up to this moment by the trilateral mechanism and by the FFC and some even regional forces is to convince the Juba signatories who have not yet signed to sign. However, the problem is they have already formed a coalition and that coalition includes some civilian forces who are actually part of the previous regime. And they are, you can call them, they are actually against what you call pro-democracy move. So these are the group whom the FFC cannot do, do the business with. And, and that makes the, the, the issue of bringing more on board more complicated. I have a, I have a, a sense that the Juba signatories are willing to sign, but they are getting it very rough to walk out from the coalition they have already had and, and walk into back into the, the camp of the FFC. But I'm convinced that it's just a matter of time. I think they will sign at any, at any time from now. I, will, I won't be surprised after at the end of the interview if we hear the news that they have signed. For me, I'm, I'm convinced that they will sign at any moment. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to pivot slightly. I, you served as peace advisor to former Prime Minister Abdullah Homdok um, during the peace negotiations uh, that led to the Juba peace agreement. Um, and that Juba peace agreement is controversial. It's produced uh, winners and losers, and there's been a fair amount of uh, fragmentation, uh, political fragmentation in some of these peripheral areas, including in eastern Sudan, um, which we've uh, touched on briefly. Um, it's also faced some real implementation challenges besides some of the political issues that have arisen around it. I, I'm just wondering, how would you assess the Juba peace agreement more than two years later? Was it a good deal? Just for the record, I, I joined the, uh, the position of the peace advisor to the Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok at the last stage of the Juba peace agreement. It was, the agreement was signed five months after I, I joined the office. However, before that, I was very active in following up the dynamics in, in different capacities. So I think Juba agreement has a lot of loopholes, a lot of problems, but all those who actually criticize it cannot deny the fact that if the Juba agreement was not signed, it means that the continuation of the war for the last two years since its signature. So the fact that the formal war came to an halt or halt, or even if you take it in another term, you, you don't recognize it as a peace because peace is supposed to deliver dividends, which is not yet the case. If you just want to call it truce, you know, this is, this is something positive. Uh, so in, in general, the Juba Peace Agreement as a document, to me, is a relatively good document. The problem is not Juba Peace Agreement document. The problem is the, the political behavior and attitude and practice of the Juba Peace Agreement stakeholders. And here I'm not, I'm not making a reference only to the rebel movement who signed the agreement, but even to the government who signed the agreement. And I call them the, the partner to the agreement. The, the, way they, the way they treated the agreement 
practically speaking, lead to a lot of weaknesses that actually made the Yuba Agreement to be like a curse rather than a blessing. So I want to make a distinction between the Yuba Peace Agreement as a document and the political attitude and practices of the, of the partner to the agreement who actually contributed to the counterproductivity of the Juba Peace Agreement. So the agreement was and still is supposed to be an added value to the pro-democracy movement and democratic process. But the signatories who were half military and half politicians, when they came to Khartoum, some of them actually decided to move closer to the military camp rather than moving closer to the civilian. And in this case, they became an added value to the military power rather than the civilian power. Now, this cannot be taken against the Juba Peace Agreement as a document. However, the main weaknesses of the agreement is what we call the, the, the approach and the way it ended by having what we call tracks, different tracks, eastern tracks, central tracks, there are four tracks. This fragmentation of the agreement led to you know, some inherent problems that are manifested widely in Eastern Sudan uh, and other parts of the, of the country. So one of the, uh, the outstanding matters after this uh, December deal is, is this question of whether or not to amend and revisit the Juba Peace Agreement. So, so you think it should be amended? Yes, sure. But the problem is this. Um, I, I told you that already you have signatories who are opposing to the political framework and those who are inside the framework agreement. And presumably who, who don't want to see the deal renegotiated. Exactly. So now, uh, here is, this is the complexity now, that the, the discussion of the Juba Peace Agreement, you review it, but there are some key partners who are not part of it, uh, in my view, can create more problems rather than ease the situation. Now, obviously, the Juba Peace Agreement also did not end all the wars in, in Sudan. The two main rebel groups, as you, as you know very well, um, in Sudan, uh, under the SPLM North, under Abdel Aziz Al-Hilu, and under the, the SLM, under Abdel Wahid Al-Nur, they did not sign... The agreement, um, Abdel Aziz, very active in the Nuba Mountains, um, especially as well in Blue Nile and, and um, Abdel Wahid in, in the Darfur region. What would it take to bring peace to all of Sudan, do you think? In my view, is that if, if at all we wanted to address the question of peace to be more comprehensive and inclusive, is to take the chance of reviewing Juba Peace Agreement to discuss the issue of peace in Sudan. What I mean by that is that if you want to review the Juba Peace Agreement, you review it with a wider, a wider framework that actually answers the question of negotiation with others who have not signed, rather than just going to improve the Juba Peace Agreement without including the, those who have not signed any, any part of the peace. This is one option. At the beginning of the negotiation of Juba Peace Agreement, you may recall, and the audience may, may recall. In, in principle, the ideal situation is to have a negotiated deal on one table or in different room, but concurrently, and you end up by having one piece of agreement. And that did not happen because of the dynamics within the different rebel movement. It was very obvious that the Juba Peace Agreement signatories 
they were more ready to to this negotiate and sign the agreement no matter what while the Abdulaziz and Hilo and uh, and Abdulwahid were, were actually wanted to have a proper negotiation and proper preparation and therefore they they were not willing to 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 do that and because of that we ended by actually having a Juba peace agreement but definitely Juba peace agreement also recognized that this is phase 1 and then phase 2 is to continue the negotiation however the dilemma here is that after the the signing of Juba peace agreement and the integration of the of the signatories into the new government of the second phase of Dr. Abdullah Hamdok the dynamics uh, and at that time I was part of the government, the dynamics started to work with more complexity regarding the position of the government versus negotiating with those who have not signed agreement because the Juba peace signatories leaders started to, you know, to, to look into Abdul Aziz and Abdul Wahid as, as, you know, as rival to them and if they sign any agreement they may be, find themselves highly marginalized within the government. So, so this is another dynamic that, that actually worked against the, you know, leading to another proper negotiation. However, I think the question of how can we strike a comprehensive peace in Sudan now, at the moment, this, there's no answer to this question. The answer will come when you have a new government in place. Secondly, the Juba peace signatories should be also prepared to take their own responsibility and make some compromises so when the, another peace agreement is signed, those who will come in, they will find themselves are not in confrontation with their comrades who have come earlier. To take an even further step back, you are from the Nuba Mountains, uh, one of the areas that remain largely in rebellion, um, and a lot of your scholarly work has also focused on that area. I'm just wondering, so our listeners can understand, how is Sudan uh, viewed there in a place like the Nuba Mountains, and, 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 and what would comprehensive peace really require for a place like that? You know, the, the image of, of Sudan in the, what is known in the political spectrum and in the SPLA literature as liberated areas. The image of, of Sudan, unfortunately, is only in the mind of the old generations. The old generation, Abdelaziz al-Hilo and his generation, will remember all the good things and bad things about Sudan, about the northern Sudan, about Khartoum. But because of the prolonged war in Nuba Mountain, the first 20 years, 22 years, before the signing of peace, a comprehensive peace agreement, and then you have short-lived transition where the integration, those areas were not integrated, actually. So they remain under the rebel control area until you have another, another war, which, is, which continue to the present day. Although there is no formal war, there is a kind of agreed-upon ceasefire agreement, but still we have a situation of no war, no, no peace. There is a, an emerging new generation, who have no in their mindset and in their you know, cognitive, they have nothing called Sudan. For them, Sudan is Khartoum with an Antinov airplane coming to bombard them and kill them. So that image is still the dominant image. For them, they don't understand why their own language, local language, local identity and culture should not be mirrored in the national identity. They don't understand why their natural resources and rich minerals and whatever agriculture cannot be to their benefit as part of the country, but rather to be siphoned by others. So there is a lot of questions 
by the new emerging generation who are actually steadily going to, to take up the leadership in a matter of time. These new generations, it will be very hard to integrate them into Sudan unless you have to be ready to pay the price of that. So there is no positive image to the Sudan from the most of the population in the SPLA control area, whether in the Blue Nile or in or in Nuba Mountain. Lastly, when they saw Darfur after the Yuba Peace signature, after the Yuba Peace Agreement signed, and the way Darfur was messed up and experienced a lot of atrocities and insecurity among the people who are supposed to enjoy peace dividends by now, when they see the, that model, they told me, do you want us to, you know, to have an agreement that will put us in a situation like what is going now in Darfur? And I cannot answer, of course. I have no answer to this. I find myself completely defeated because they have logic there. If this is the peace you want us to, to sign with the government, if this, if this is the leadership in Khartoum where, where you can sign agreement now and then you flow to Khartoum and then the second day a coup d'etat happened. And that makes actually the, the, the readiness of the community there to be more difficult. And therefore, in my view, the SPLA leadership are not only facing pressure from the international, but they are fa facing more pressure from the bottom. And, and that needs a lot of understanding and a lot of analysis in order to reach to what, what kind of peace the, that can actually bring Sudan into oneness, into feeling of oneness and national identity. In, in my view, that type of strategy is yet to be seen. It's not there. I don't see it anywhere. Thanks, Professor, for that. Um, I just have a final question. What do you think needs to come out of these so-called phase two negotiations? What, what do Sudanese and outside actors need to do you know, to really get us to this next government and, and make sure the government is uh, legitimate enough and has enough support then to, to, to stand and move this uh, transition forward? Yes, I think uh, the, the current process definitely has a lot of challenges, a lot of you know, issues to overcome before you will have a viable government. And that means more times. But at the same time, the agency does not allow that. Normal citizen will tell you that I need government now that will deliver. But to have a government now which will deliver, you need to overcome those hurdles, those challenges, including minimum consensus among the civilian to form a government. So that 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 is the that is the challenge. However, when you talk about the current process is so bad, is so weak, is so risky. The question became, what is the alternative? And when you ask this question, nobody will come with, with any alternative. So it's very obvious that this, is, this process have no way to turn back. It has to continue in order to have, at some time, sooner or later, to have a civilian government. I am for, if you ask me personally what to do today, my, my opinion will be that with tomorrow, with those who have signed the agreement, Form a government. That's it. While those issues continue to be dialogue, and also you you allow the government open up, and if if any party join.
tomorrow you reshuffle the government and you accommodate those who are coming in and you continue working, continue negotiating. Because the, the theory that we need to reach consensus on those issues and then we move to the government, in fact, the risk is that we can continue this process endlessly. And I hope this is this is not the case. So, so there is no, I don't have an answer to as to when or how this government will, will be formed, but I don't see the alternative. I see that this is the right way to move and the people, the Sudanese people continue to dialogue among themselves. International continue, community should continue to support the process since there's no alternative and since there is no any other option apart from this option of negotiation and trying to reach into a civilian government. Uh, of course, the international community is seeing the, the delay and they're not happy about it, but at the same time, they don't want to intervene too much so that they allow the process to be Sudanese, Sudanese led. And I think this is, this is the paradox that you leave it to the Sudanese, Sudanese, but then the Sudanese, Sudanese wanted to take it longer and the civilian and the pe local people are suffering and, and the urgency is making, is becoming more urgency. But to make it worse, the revolution movement, especially the youth, are actually, there is like a competing two paradigm here, urgency and revolution, radical, long-term struggle. These are two, you know, competing paradigms working together now. The, the youth are not in hurry. They are seeing the urgency, but they say that we wanted to do it once and for all, even if it takes us longer and is more sacrifice. And I think this is one of the dilemma that the, the, the current process is, is actually facing. Let us hope that we will see the government in a few weeks, if not in a few months. Thank you, Professor, for, for all your time for, and for sharing all these insights with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alan, for having me. And I hope that I, I have added some points that are useful for the audience and for you as well. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. The Horn is produced by Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 